Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. We, we, we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horror. The fifth column. Greetings, and welcome back to another exciting installment of the fifth column podcast. This is your weekly rhetorical assault on the news cycle, the people that make it, and occasionally ourselves. I'm Camille Foster, and I still remember when I used to get a bunch of emails complaining about how Camille is always talking about race stuff. I was trying to warn y'all. You see what happened. You didn't listen. You wanted me to shut up about it. Fine. I'll shut up about it now. Just let Oprah talk to y'all about race. (laughs) And I'll just keep doing extraordinary things at a place called Free Think. And you know who may also have some things to say? Matt Welch, editor at Large Reason Magazine. Michael Moynihan, he does things at Vice, Vice News, national correspondent, or something. something. I don't know anymore. Who knows? I think he's who actually knows? a day trader. That's um, what I do most of the time. Day trader, real estate maven, and uh, resident gold bug. Uh, gentlemen, it's just the three of us. It feels yeah. it feels nice. We're actually all of us. in New York, but we're recording we remotely this we week. Try. <laughs> and Why I'm are we delighted to be with you guys. Uh, remotely, Camille? Well, I was feeling a little weird, and I actually still do. I feel like, I don't know, not like COVID sick, but just a little weird. And I thought, you know, I'm going to do the responsible thing. I'm going to social distance myself and just will record remotely instead of all together. Because if I do have a dreaded disease, I don't want to pass it to you guys. To be clear, by feeling weird, as has been shown in the pre-roll, uh, which also showed why we, we can never have an outside editor yeah. unless there is not just a non-disclosed, non-disparagement. Uh, yes, to explain like that a, in the Patreon, we asked, like, hey, does anyone good editors and the rest of it? And then, uh, and then it just <laughs> wasn't on the occur- Patreon, actually. Oh, it wasn't. It was in the regular one. No. Well, it just yeah. like, occurred to uh, us <laughs> right now <laughs> that um, we'd basically be creating a hostage situation. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, I've always known that. I've always known. <laughs> you, like, well, because you have the Money. force field. Yeah. Yeah. I also have uh, all the tapes. So yeah, I got to Oh, he's threatening. That sounds me. threatening. I uh, know. Uh, like uh, by by feeling under the weather, uh, Camille means that he's literally like darting up out of his chair and chasing mosquitoes. Yeah. Can you feel the air <laughs> quotes uh, in his house? Oh, he does have a mosquito problem. <laughs> and he's like he's he's raising his blinds. He's lowering his blinds. It's night. It's like yeah. I, blinds. I don't, don't matter. I don't right have now. an opioid problem. I've got plenty of opioids. <laughs> And, uh, and no I'm not going to run out, so there's no problem at all. I mean, what was uh, Ray Charles's great quote? Like, I don't have a problem with heroin. I have a problem yeah. with cops. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> Why is no one marching through the streets with that sign? <laughs> I'd get behind that. Exactly. Someone might, someone might be, actually. We don't shades. know. I'd be out there, like, you know, marching four square behind them. I don't know what oh, we're doing man. this week. Like, there's there's plenty of stuff going on. There was a, a massive, massive explosion in Lebanon. Um, mm. Folks had been trying to figure out what was going on there. A lot of speculation that that might have been some sort of nuclear attack. All of that speculation was wrong. The president and the former vice president, who would be president, mm. this is the 20th time he would be president. Both of them are saying insane things. Yeah. We could talk about that. Uh, Mr. Biden... Uh, is having a lot of challenges deciding which BIPOC woman 
will be his running mate. And that's something that we could perhaps discuss because I it can be difficult I to choose. Say that he was having trouble figuring out the order in which the words go. Because well, he's that, also having that, that problem. Yeah. That's, but that's always been a problem. It's definitely not a sign of cognitive decline. And he, he is just chomping at the bit. He cannot wait to get on the debate stage with Donald Trump. That is just true, right? Well, yeah, he said um, there was some string of words uh-huh. he was talking about. Uh, this was a couple of days ago when he was talking about you know, what would happen when he got up on the d- debate stage with Donald Trump. And it was... I mean, a word salad is too generous. It was like a word yeah. smoothie. It was just blended and it was completely baffling. And at the end, he was like, yeah, I'm not, do you remember this? And he's like, I'm not going to say that. I'm not going to say that. It'll get me in trouble. And it was like, what are you talking, <laughs> what are you talking about, dude? About? And it was something about debating Trump. And I just kind of walked away and I was like, this is the country we deserve at this point with these two people running against each other. It's the battle for the basement. And, you know, may the best man lose. Biden like had two or three separate occasions. Even one of them was kind of like a planned ad. Did you watch his stupid uh, vetting ad? It's like, oh, I've been asking me about vetting, and I've been doing a lot of vetting. Look at me drive my Corvette. Get it? Um, and like uh, all that seriously? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh uh, God! Well, is it, it, like the Democrats are running fucking Shecky Green. I mean, what he's doing a vetting. <laughs> oh my God! No, but he's a real American man. He's driving that Corvette. He like really likes the. The, the horsepower and his dad boy he sure could drive before him and man gotta love this and we're gonna make cars like this in america again it's just it's terrible but um he gave a couple of interviews including one that you talked about and he's like saying just crazy stuff um that should you know rightly sink or hobble or you know derail for half a second any normal presidential candidate but it's in the same week literally that trump gave his Jonathan Swan interview, which is amazing. Oh my God, which is amazing that this the person best is president. Revelation of that interview was that Jonathan Swan is Australian. Yeah, who knew? <laughs> no idea. Did not know. <laughs> no not idea. Know. Uh, and uh, and then also Trump today. We're, we're recording this on what is it? Thursday. It's Thursday. Thursday. Yeah. Um, Trump today is like uh, Joe Biden is gonna he's gonna attack God. <laughs> like, <laughs> like just it's totally fucking insane do, do you know so how far we've fallen remember in 2000 matt and i remember you know you uh, covered this campaign so you'll remember you remember the reporter from boston and i can't remember what channel was in boston uh had that disaster well george w bush had the disastrous interview with him and the disaster was that he couldn't like name the leader of turkmenistan yeah. And it was it was like Tajikistan or something like that, and, and he, it was like and he mentioned uh, like uh, Slovakians and Grecians also. Yeah, he said Grecian. Yeah, and there was and then know. he kind of got one of the names right, which I was like, yeah, at the time I was like, well, I kind of got it right. I'm impressed by that <laughs> low bar, but like that was like the disastrous interview. And then I watched the Jonathan Swan one, and I'm like, yeah, nobody cares. It's just like a day in the news cycle, and it's done. I mean that Bush thing. I mean I remember today because that was that was such a big deal at the time. And, you know, mm-hmm. good God, how yeah. how far will we fall in our standards of what what these people can get away with? But then again, some of that and I, I wrote about that, I think, in the 2016 campaign, we might even talked about it because who knows what we talked about in 2016. But when uh, 
Trump went on with with Hugh Hewitt and talked about the Cuds forces. Oh, and he, yeah. And he, and yeah. he thought it was the Kurds. Yeah, the Kurds. Uh-huh. Fair enough. Who the hell are the Cuds forces anyway? <laughs> um, the funny thing about the well, it's a Q and a K, but the funny thing about it was that his <laughs> he had one line about the Kurds. And I remember when we were doing first started doing the show, I remember saying does does Donald Trump think there's like an infinite number of Kurds? Because like anything was like disarm the Kurds. Yeah. It's like, but, uh, so the German economy is slowing this week, but you know, just arm the Kurds; they'll take care of it. It's like, who do you think these people are, and how many do you think there are to begin with? But yeah, that was that was the, that was but a joke of, back then. But but all of those moments, um, and this repeats itself if you look at it. If they do become big moments among journalists, that's what they yeah. talk about, and it almost never has any even measurable bump. Uh, uh, to the overall voting population, like they don't care about your foreign policy quizzes, you know. No. They, they don't. They don't care if you have proven that you've read that one book that Hugh Hewitt is reading, you know, this year as opposed to next year or the year before. You know, like the the, the looming tower for the, the 50s. looming tower. Exactly. I, look, I was say I, the burning I, bush. I, I, <laughs> the burning bush. Good, good series. Um, I am fairly certain, and I think you guys are probably also fairly certain. I think I think everybody in the media is, also understands this, but I would love for them to come out and say it. That if this was not Donald Trump, and if they didn't believe this to be the most pivotal election in the history of the American Republic, they might mm. be pointing out that Joe Biden is incoherent. Um, and that would be a thing. And you'd hear a lot about it. There'd be editorials about it. There'd be blooper reels on MS. And, you know, I mean, remember at the very, very last year and a half, basically, of Reagan's presidency, all of those slip ups, you know, were. Uh, and there was cognitive decline. I mean, I think that people around him even even said that after the fact, not not you know sort of extemporaneous. I mean, um, contemporaneously, uh, but that was a thing, right? And it, it's in all the books about it. It's amazing to me that he's running for president. He hasn't even started yet, and looks like he might win. And no one is talking about this except for like you know hatchet men on the right. Well, I mean, he was asked about that in one of his gaffes. Uh, of this week, you know, he's like, would you take the I think it was on test? MSM, MSNBC, right? Yeah. And yeah, and he was just like, well, well heroin. Yeah, um, yeah, that was good. That was good. <laughs> but the, by the way, this is the moment we're living in. It's just so unbelievably and unbearably stupid. Was it all the headlines was like uh, Biden asks black journalist if he's on heroin and i watched the clip i was like oh dear god that's incredible and i watched the clip and i was like i don't know if he's asking anyone he's just blurting yeah, out. he's, like, he's just saying these are just words he's not being racist yeah. he's he's being old and senile <laughs> and look heroin was a, was a black drug in the 50s but is it heroin a black drug now not come no. on no. <laughs> it was a jazz drug it was a cool drug and now that's it's right. not not cool anymore it was cool in the ni- early nineties, right? The black well, drug I mean, is so- whatever Camille's on right now, oh, chasing the mosquitoes. <laughs> so, so, who, so who gets the award for stupidest presidential utterance of the week? Like, what what is what does oh. it boil down to? I mean, Joe Biden suggesting this week that there is, you know, everybody knows, or at least all of you know, that there is no fundamental quantifiable difference between black people. Like, they're all the same, with a few exceptions that's the only thing he's been consistent on because he said the same thing before remember (laughs) remember when he was like if if you're black and you don't vote for me you're a traitor to your race because all black people think the same thing you're not really black so he's consistent on it and people at the new york times agree 
so that maybe that's not the stupidest thing. <laughs> a lot of people um, seem to agree these days, which is unfortunate. I mean, uh, uh, Trump saying, uh, and we've, we've gotten inured to it, but that uh-huh. um, that absentee voting and mail-in voting are different things, which mm-hmm. they're uh-huh. not, um, <laughs> and that um, it's the it's like self-evidently uh, filled with fraud, which it isn't, even though it mm-hmm. is the most common category where fraud can happen, but it's incredibly rare. And it's usually among people who are like college students who straddle states and they vote in the wrong state. It's almost never some kind of organized action. Uh, But he keeps suggesting that uh, elections might be illegitimate, um, which is for someone who, and and also that he could do something about it, which he can't, uh, that he, he might sign an executive act order you know, yeah. uh, having to do with elections or maybe withdraw funding or withhold funding, um, all of which is nonsense. Mm-hmm. Um, and this and it repeats something that he's been saying since ha- after the election. You would have you would have thought in 2016 he'd be like, OK, cool, I won. So we don't really need to talk about this anymore. In fact, what he did was he said that um, between three and five million uh, illegal immigrants or their illegal votes happened in the election. That's and that's why he lost the popular vote, um, right. even though he won fair and square. And, and that is incredibly nonsensical. And and like to be the head of government uh, and calling into question so strongly um, the uh, the election process is a terrible thing to do. It's really a, an awful, no. despicable thing to do. Um, as was appointing a total sham of an election integrity commission headed up by Chris Kobach, who, uh, you know, at some point he'll take the hint that people, even people like in him. Kansas don't, <laughs> even Republicans in Kansas don't like you, dude. That's how bad it is with you. Um, now, Matt, uh, I, I want to try to take some of this a bit seriously. You yeah. know, obviously you're talking about some of what happened after the 2016 election, but we did on Tuesday have a couple of primaries um, happen. And there was a story that was just published in the Washington Post uh, on the 4th. It was anxieties about mail ballots on display in the latest round of primaries highlighting worries for fall. And the Washington Post is known to be uh, a Trumpian publication. It's always very, very MAGA. No, no, there there are tons and tons of worries. I'm not saying that there isn't worries. I mean, we still are counting votes right, right in New, New York. York City. We're still counting. It's yeah. seven weeks. That's yeah. a, like a serious problem. Yeah. But that's different than systematic, uh, you know, fraud that's yes. happening or might happening. It might happen, uh, and yeah. that's I think an important delineation to make. So, so yes, I. So as I said, I want to take the issue of mail-in ballots and the prominence that it is very likely they're going to be playing in the upcoming election and the degree to which we're already seeing signs that this is likely to actually be a problem, that the USPS playing a prominent role in the election cycle is probably not a great thing, even if it is a thing that is definitely going to happen. Um, us seeing sort of these protracted periods of um, vote counting is one thing. People not even receiving their ballots is another thing. Ballots going missing is another thing. And it I mean, is half certainly of my true. Amazon packages go missing, and I don't think it's yeah. Amazon's fault. <laughs> and the, the packages here. packages are a bit different, right? Because your neighbor might might steal those, but maybe your ma- neighbor would steal your ballot oh, too. No, I don't I know. have things that just disappear <laughs> from the USPS, like they have a tracking number. Just like we like we have no idea. Which it just, just never, never arrives delivered. Anywhere. No, it's happened yeah. a number of times recently. 
I mean, so this seems like a legitimate concern, even if the president is unable to articulate it in a serious way. He, he no, does he, it's, highlight it's, some of some of the issues associated it, with that. He's articulating most of it in a conspiratorial and opportunistic yes. way, including like, oh, Florida does it great. So we're all fine in Florida, but it's just like Nevada. That's where the problem is. There's mm-hmm. literally like no difference in in the two. What Nevada is doing um, and this is the thing that he points out that is correct, which is the New York problem, which is what happens when a state goes from um, not doing this before to suddenly doing it. Um, sure. They, they need to think about doing it better than New York certainly did it. And that includes over tethering it just to the post office or, you know, having enough people to count uh, actual votes and to, you know, having the logistics uh, sorted. That is absolutely true. There isn't. We have five states in this country where people have been. It's been primarily mail-in ballots, where mail-in, every voter yeah. gets uh, mail-in. Utah, from what I understand, has not been rampant with uh, you know anti-Republican voter fraud over the last uh, several years, and yet they've been doing mail-in ballots for a good long time. And understandably, in coronavirus, you're going to have more states like that. Nevada is really interesting because it's a swing state, or at least it has been until recently. Uh, but think about this for a second from a uh, so, yes, there is going to be a logistic I- issue because they haven't done this before and they need to think about how to do this so that they don't do New York. Keep in mind that New York, every single thing at every single level in New York is done worse than almost any other state. It is it is governed by absolute morons who try mm. to make I mean, it's the most expensive subway system in terms of like building track per mile like 2x of any other subway system they get everything wrong so yes they got their election wrong um nevada is not governed nearly as badly but who um are the people who are most likely to use mail-in voting in in nevada in a swing state in a very split state it's old white people it's old white people who are scared who vote republican overwhelmingly and, and Donald Trump is is sitting there and telling them that, that you know mail in voting is fraudulent stay away from it it's toxic um mm-hmm. he is absolutely shooting himself in the foot message wise that's why he went to and started talking about how great it is in Florida because like oh shit i know people who vote in by mail in Florida including I don't know, me. Uh, and if I tell them enough that they shouldn't vote or that it's somehow problematic, that, that, that it's going to discourage their voting. And, and who are the people in Nevada who are voting on the other side? They are disproportionately young. They're disproportionately Latino. They're disproportionately, therefore, must, much less likely to vote by mail. So it's it's fascinating to watch, um, like, spin through the mind of Donald Trump, which I try not to do, but, like, uh, in terms of, of try to make the system as as uh, well done as possible. I'm totally fine with that. Point out the flaws in New York. Totally fine with that. Making wild conspiracy claims, which he does always in the same paragraph that he does this other stuff to, is going to hurt him in Nevada. But but he's uh, working backwards from that, right? I mean, it's not as if he looked at the New York situation and said, maybe I should raise this as an issue. I mean, if the New York situation didn't happen, and you know, I can't see any. Uh, possibility that that wouldn't happen because, as you pointed out, we're we're governed by a series of complete idiots and boobs here. So, going to happen, right? Even if it didn't, Donald Trump would still make this claim, right? The claim that he's making is that if I lose, they cheated. That's it. There's nothing more complicated than that. We can get into the weeds and talk about what's happening in Nevada, talk about Florida, et cetera. But he is backfilling his argument when people come in and say, okay, here's how you address it. But his only thing is just single sentence scare tactics is what he does. I mean, the tweet, 
um, on July, it was 29th, that I I found so loathsome. And Donald Trump tweets a lot of loathsome stuff. And it was this one. I'm happy to inform all of the people living their capital letters, suburban lifestyle dream, which isn't a phrase that anyone uses. Suburban lifestyle dream? Like, what, what is... I mean, Our at least... fire record, I think. Uh, yeah, so, exactly. <laughs> at least Joe Biden has, like, a medical issue. That, like, his, his, <laughs> Donald Trump oh is by his own... His, his, like, I'm healthy. I pass all the tests. I'm like, really? So you're just dumb? Uh, people living their suburban lifestyle dream that you will no longer be bothered or financially hurt by having low-income housing built in your neighborhood. That's a similar version of that. It's a single sentence. It doesn't address an issue that is an actual issue that people have been clamoring about. It doesn't address some you know amazing piece of legislation that has passed. And it's it is just. The classic, I'm panicking, scare tactics. I mean, even when he's not panicking, even when he sort of knows that it doesn't think that he's going to win, which I don't think he did in 2016, in this kind of stuff comes dribbling out of his mouth. And it's like, you can racialize that actually fairly easily because um, I think there is that subtext to it. I, I wouldn't be surprised if that was the motivation in some ways. And he, but even if you don't, it is just a sleazy just a horrifying thing for a president to say you're not going to be bothered by low-income people in your neighborhood we're not going to have the poor ruining your quote suburban lifestyle dream i mean (laughs) like this is the president that we have right now it's it's just offensive on about a thousand levels but the real question here moynihan is can you name the five things in order that the president of the united states can that's a good question can you do it moynihan right now the five things in order yeah, yeah don't, test. you, you oh, know what it is. Yeah. Do it. Don't look uh, it up. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. You can't do it? No. I, you wow. have total recall, dude. You like... <laughs> no, <laughs> no you I do. You know what, like the Clash basis okay. kind of underwear he had for breakfast. Paul well, can you used to eat uh, like Buster <laughs> Packs for breakfast. <laughs> can you do it, Welch? No, I can't. It's like a uh, woman TV uh, Yankee <laughs> Hotel Foxtrot. Yeah, was, yeah. Seriously? Neither one of you? Neither one of you know how to person, woman, man, camera, TV. Neither wow. one of you. I don't even know what that is. Tell me what it is again. <laughs> this is the cognitive test. This is the yeah, president explaining these, I'm pretty the cognitive test that he took. <laughs> yeah. And you're told person, woman, man, camera, TV. Uh-huh. And then at some point later on in the test, they'll say, hey, do you remember those things? Person, woman, order. camera, man, TV. Can you tell me again? So at various yeah. intervals yeah. throughout this engagement, he's asked to recall that. And he Oh, I was not aware of that. Yeah. What? Yeah. I, I wasn't <laughs> aware that this happened. No. Yeah, you're a day Is he's this just what busy day trading. Like day trading and buying houses? That's no, it. it's what happens when you stop giving a shit. <laughs> it's like no, it's, you, you know, it's you don't like, have to know that. When are, you, yeah. when are we gonna get to the part where we get to talk about dumb stuff? Because the, this stuff is even dumber than the normal dumb stuff. So. It is. It yeah. is. It is. Yeah. I'm, um, I'm, yeah, I'm, it's, it's all very depressing. But I will say to, to, as, as a transition, I'm going to allow myself the, the, uh, prerogative here to actually a transition because we're talking about stupid people in, uh, uh, New York City. And, um, rather surprised, but then I thought for two seconds and wasn't surprised that Tish James, uh, decided that she was going to um, destroy uh, the criminal organization that is the NRA. And, you know, for those of us who, I mean, I think Wayne LaPierre is probably a pretty sleazy guy. 
And I think that has nothing to do with gun policy. It's because of the Wall Street Journal stuff and a lot of his reporting that came out that he was like, you know, ferrying his family to the Bahamas on the, the um, you know, membership dues, I guess, of, of kind of average gun owners are paying for his luxurious lifestyle. Bad stuff. And there was a, there was a, a fracture and a rift in the, in the organization, and that was all quite public. And so, yeah, I don't have a lot of respect for the guy, but did you guys pay attention to this today? That, that the city of New York, that, that someone is standing in New York City saying that we are going to destroy the NRA? And by the way, this has nothing, nothing, she says, to do with my own politics. And then somebody raises their hand and says, um, uh, did you, was it you that once called the NRA a terrorist organization? <laughs> oh, sure. But that's, that's, but just, I don't think, by the way, I don't think anyone asked her that, but that's just my fantasy that somebody aesthetic, would. Uh, uh, thing. Uh, the, uh, it, it calls to mind, I think it was a New York uh, city councilman. It might've been, it wasn't mine, but it was the uh, next door one here that, um, about a year and a half ago, um, browbeat a local venue from holding a normal, like, you know, meet and greet fundraiser for the NRA. Like, oh, you really shouldn't do that. It's shameful that you're enabling this right-wing racist terrorist organization. And it was canceled. So you have public officials in the city of New York, also the state of New York, who see their, and they they fundraise off this stuff too. They, They, you know, they run for their little stupid local elections that no one cares about and votes in, except for me. Uh, and they run against Donald Trump, although he's not on the ballot in any way, shape or form and does not affect their life, uh, except very tangentially. Um, they see it as good politics. And the the thing that drives me nuts about this, besides all of the reaction to it, including uh, Talking Points memo, Joshua Micah Marshall, who is just like fist pumping so much, uh, you, know, you know, basically like sucks to be a terrible criminal organization. Booyah. That's more or less a quote of uh, of how he tweeted in response. Did he to actually this. say but like, booyah? No, but like okay. it's, it was worse. <laughs> that I would have been very upset about. It was worse. <laughs> that would have been kind of good. Um, like that if I remember people used to talk about, you know, how in the Trump era, it's going to degrade our, our norms, our mores. Well, that's what this is, people. When you start to personalize and, and I'm, again, I, I, I should say I'm not blaming this on Trump at all. I'm saying that if your response to someone who treats uh, government as this thing to reward your friends and punish your enemies, which is uh, some some second world shit here um, that I had hoped not to see. If your response to that is like, cool, I'll do it in the places that we control politically. Um, and we'll go after those bag, even though like, what, what is the jurisdictional claim here that the NRA, especially in New York City, like it's they're just using it to punish people that they know that their political donors hate and they'll get all the high fives for it. And it's grotesque. It's grotesque. You're just you're going after and the NRA is is probably a criminal organization at this point. It's run by frauds and crooks and all that kind of crap. Mm-hmm. Um, but like. That's not what's happening here. This is not like a dispassionate investigation into something like that. No, um, and, and, and also future, if if Letitia James is interested in organizations that um, misspend uh, money, uh, she should probably investigate the city of New York, number one, and investigate uh, you know any other number of businesses and nonprofits and the rest of it. I mean, it's not a coincidence, and it is really insulting for her to stand up there and say that this isn't political. Of course, she has to say that. 
but um, you know, she could, on the other hand, just not do something uh, this uh, sort of stupid and nakedly partisan. Um, I was surprised when I looked on Twitter that there was no one actually saying that people who dislike the NRA um, was, was saying, you know what, this is actually maybe a bridge too far. We should, if we were going to fight the NRA and, and destroy them, and you know that is her stated goal to destroy the organization. You know, maybe there's a better way of doing it, and maybe we shouldn't have the Attorney General of New York City uh, of New York uh, t- taking swings uh, at the NRA. It just doesn't seem like this is something that she should be um, wasting her time with. That's what we have. We have attorneys general in like if you're blue, then you go after Republicanoid organizations. Yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. Trump organizations, and if you're red, you go after some other you know, Planned Parenthood and God knows what. And it's that's that cycle is not going to stop. You know, Joe Biden no. wins in November. That's absolutely not going to stop. There's going to be there's going to be a whole hell of a lot of like sense of payback. I was um, uh, having a uh, a Zoom meeting with some uh, reason donors earlier uh, today. I'm not talking out of school um, uh, uh, with uh, Damon Root, our good friend, and uh, and Josh Blackman from the Volk Conspiracy, just sort of talking about the legal picture in the world. And I think it was Josh Blackman who pointed out uh, something along the lines of like. Or maybe he's in Damon, uh, but that uh, Democrats have this sense they want payback from Merrick Garland. There will be blood extracted for what went down when Merrick Garland was nominated by Barack Obama in the final year of his presidency, and Mitch McConnell and the and the Republican-controlled Senate sat in his hands and refused to even have any confirmation hearings, which I think was a total, you know, dick move and wrong and 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 irresponsible and a bunch of yeah, other stuff. But it was good um, politics, right? Um, yeah, yeah. I at some point like stop doing good politics and, and do your job, but um, oh no, I'm on that side of things. But from their perspective, it was effective. Yeah, I know it, it. It worked. Their their scoreboard works out for that. But like Democrats are just sort of sitting there. They're waiting for payback and revenge on that. And a decent prediction is that that revenge will be ugly. There will be some elements in the way that that is done. And uh, and that's that is not the way that like we get out of this thing, this this broader thing that we're in. Um, but we will see it. There will be there will be like recriminations uh, if Biden wins, which he's on, you know, trajectory of doing right now, though. Who knows what happens in life? Um, and, but that that's going to be ugly to watch, just as it is ugly to watch Donald Trump try to punish his enemies, reward his friends, pardon the crooks that lied to cover up whatever for him. Um, mm-hmm. It's just we're we're in a bad place right now. Another related storyline, at least talking about sort of the awfulness of New York City, which has been mentioned, um, and also something that is closely related to guns and gun policy is the spike in violent crime that we're seeing in a couple of cities. And I know we've talked about this before in the past, but I saw a piece at 538, and it's sort of a vintage 538 piece. It's totally the piece you would expect them to write. And the title of it was, Many Americans are convinced crime is rising in the U.S. They're wrong. Um, But their fear makes everyone less safe. Um, And the piece, as you would expect, alludes to some of the things that Donald Trump has been saying um, recently on the campaign trail, you know, alluding to uh, a city that will cities that will be awash in violence and um, murder rates that will go through the roof and, you know, criminals climbing in through your back window. Um, 
it's certainly the case that America is less violent than it was 30-odd years ago. We've seen tremendous declines in crime rates, and it is certainly the case that crime is not up uniformly across the country, be it property or violent or otherwise. But in particular places, places like New York City, like Chicago, um, they are seeing pretty Minneapolis substantial... And Portland Minneapolis and Portland, too. Yeah. Well, they're, they're all seeing substantial increases in the number of shootings and particularly the number of homicides. Actually, I don't know that the number of shootings isn't also um, sort of peaking in, in record ways. I imagine it is. It is. It is. I'm, I'm a bit more concerned about a homicide than I am someone who survives. So let's just say both of those things are happening, including homicides, including some really like tragic, awful stuff. I mean, cookouts where multiple people are shot, where one-year-olds are, are shot and killed. And it, it's... I have a bit of difficulty parsing, you know, the publication of a piece that says crime isn't going up when, in fact, there are communities that are seeing a marked increase in violent crime rates. Um, And I think that story juxtaposed with another story that I actually saw first at Reason, Matt, um, and it was something Nick wrote up about a new Gallup poll, I believe suggesting that an overwhelming percentage of black Americans, that's how they were described, so I imagine they self-identified that way when responding to the poll, said that they wanted the level of policing in their communities to be about the same, if not increased, which is a substantial surprise result um, if you were led to believe that what black people are most concerned about is the presence of police in their neighborhood and that they not only are concerned about them, but they want to abolish the existence of the police department. Um, I don't know if you gentlemen have been watching the same things, but I do know, Moynihan, that two nights ago you sent a text about FBG Duck and Mm -hmm. the fact that he got hit on the Gold Coast in Chicago. And I mean, I know everyone listening to the fifth column knows exactly who FBG Duck is, and they they understand his relationship to Tuca and Tucaville, and how Chief Keefe and Lil Reese and a number of these other there's always a a little Durky how they all like factor into this and the intense blood feud that has existed in Chirac with the Chirac savages going after each other, and I'm just saying if they can hit FBG Duck in broad daylight on the Gold Coast, I mean, anybody can get got right now. When when you, when you I sent it to you, I was like, who the fuck is this guy? And you sent me a video, and uh-huh. I, I sent Camille a text back, and I said, as predicted, within the first eight seconds, <laughs> the man who was murdered is pointing a gun at the camera. And it's always, it's always that thing. And there was a really interesting story that even if you don't, like, know the minutia of, like, sort of, like, underground hip-hop... And like SoundCloud rappers and like all this stuff. There is a really interesting one that Camille, you sent me about these murders and this Rico charge against these guys in Boston, my mm-hmm. hometown. And they're all rappers. And then they, and apparently, or a couple of them were a, a big, you know, one of the gangs was like overlapping with this kind of crew. And in the videos, they were giving clues to the crimes that they had committed. Mm-hmm. And they're like, you know, recreating some of the murders that they committed in the videos. So these aren't the smartest people in the world, but they yeah. are absolutely brutal and vicious people. And, you know, it's, it's, it's really unfortunate that in Chicago, I mean, predating all of this 
uh, stuff about defunding the police and, you know, replacing them with, you know, yoga teachers or whatever the hell the plan is now. This was obviously had been ha- happening in Chicago for quite a long time. You know, it is obviously creeping into these neighborhoods, broad daylight. It's kind of Chicago tradition in some sense. I mean, it's back to the Al Capone 1920s kind of mafia days, but the mafia is quite different. Um, you know, it's happening in New York all the time. Like, you know, Paul Castellano would be shot in front of Spark Steakhouse, uh, you know, middle of uh, Midtown Manhattan uh, in the 50s somewhere. Uh, not in the 50s, the time, the, the streets. It was in 50, 50 something. And, and you know, he gets shot down in the street. But the weird thing, the thing that, that is really surprising and the contortions that people are twisting themselves into to try to say that this has nothing to do with what we desire with the police is in Portland. Um, Portland in July, and I think I sent you guys this chart, uh, saw the most homicides in a single month in 30 years. Mm. 30 years. In the uh, the Willamette Weekly had this thing, and some professors like, oh, it just could be a tick. It probably has uh, nothing to do with the fact that we disbanded the Portland police's uh, gun violence reduction team. Is uh, July 1st. They, it was no longer a thing. So the gun violence reduction team goes away on July 1st. At the end of July, you have the most homicides in Portland in 30 years now. That should could be, you know, the correlation causation theory I don't know about. And, and there is a kind of wait and see. But it is a bit suspicious, isn't it? Right? Mm. <laughs> that Portland has, is now a kind of occupied city in certain parts. And, you know, it's funny because these people saying, uh, well, now that the federal uh, police force and federal agents are out of Portland and that was negotiated, now everybody's marching peacefully and everything's fine. No. And no. that's not true. And You're rioting like, uh, every night. Rioting every night. And a couple of days later, I saw someone uh, stabbed on video by a protester. And there was like, it was, and, and you hear people saying, call, get, call the cops, call the police. As the person's like bleeding out on that. And I'm like, yeah, no, that's what you do. And if you guys um, get what you want, I don't know who you are planning on calling, um, your friend from the local sort of Maoist organization or something is going to come over and and uh, you know stitch this person up, but yeah, I mean, I, it's it doesn't seem the same thing is obviously true, and I don't have the numbers in front of me, but uh, the same thing uh, has been true in Minneapolis, and they are, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong about this. I just read a headline, so I don't. That's not enough, but that they're walking back the let's defund the police and disband the police department that is being walked back correct yeah that is uh they're like oh maybe huh maybe not um kind of thing look, the, uh, look, we, the so fucking frustrating it's, sorry <laughs> the uh the pretzel logic is frustrating right 538 comes from this classic like mini you know t- 20 teens genre of explanatory journalism we were talking before we started about like Moynihan watching Vox TV, and who knew that that's still a thing? And Vox used to have <laughs> it was uh, on YouTube. I saw it on YouTube. Have pretensions of being explanatory journalism. I don't think anyone really takes that very seriously anymore, um, and maybe shouldn't have in the first place. Um, but like, that's the wrong. That's the wrong explanation in fog. In a moment of fog. Like, mm-hmm. okay, weird stuff's happening right now, right? Like, it's mm-hmm. I think what is it, thirty six of fifty top cities the 
murder rates or the shooting rates are are going up have gone up okay that's that's interesting that's that suggests that there might be something we saw similar suggestions that there might be some something in the summer of 2014 which is the ferguson year um and there was talk back then of a ferguson effect and mm-hmm. it wasn't widespread it wasn't in every or it wasn't systematic in every city of a certain size um in retrospect now that we know more about it backdrop is as we've probably mentioned before like Criminologists and people study this stuff um, at the John Jay School here in New York, which is you know the leading school that, that looks at this. They've been arguing and haven't come to a consensus opinion. Why did crime go up for three decades and then why did it go down in everywhere? Not just in every American city, not just in Around New York, the world. Yeah. but in the world, basically the world. So if they're still arguing about three decade long trends, maybe maybe we don't state definitively that people are wrong when they say that crime is going up right now. People might be right. We might just not know fully yet. Uh, What we found in the Ferguson year was that in places, including Ferguson and I think broader St. Louis, definitely in Baltimore and in a handful of cities which had um, uh long-lasting contentious relationships with policing and controversies about this and kind of a lack of trust and perhaps more corruption on the police side, certainly in Baltimore, that is definitely the case. Mm -hmm. Um, And so like this, uh, these things uh, combined. So it might be that people stop calling the cops, which is a, a kind of a normal thing that you would expect in times when people lose their trust in the police. Or it could also be that police are like, screw you guys, I'm going home which I think there's an element of that in New York City right now. Um, De- and- definitely, and that's the proactive uh, policing versus passive policing. And I know that the cops are doing their jobs in the sense that they're responding to calls, but they're not going to trouble spots and kind of driving around in circles like they often do. Well, you've, you've had whole units disbanded that were responsible for that sort of, Correct. Um, yes. that sort of engagement. The, the folks who are probably most responsible for helping to put the fear of God into kids and keeping them from having guns on the street. So in, in Minneapolis, they, and I don't, I can't cite the exact thing that they disbanded or the practice that they ceased, but they stopped one of those units and or practices a couple of months back that was uh, specifically targeted at guns. Um, and so you remove the practice and many of those practices, most of them, I would assume that I would be against you know, as uh-huh. I was against stop and frisk in New York city. Yeah, yeah. Because how is it going to be used? You're, you're shaking down a hundred people. Only one of them is going to have a gun. How are you going to shake them down? How are you going to choose it? Well, you're going to hang out outside of a housing project and just make people feel like they live in an occupied zone. I think that's yeah. wrong on a civil libertarian mm-hmm. point of view. Um, sure. Uh, and, and so it, but in many of those places, those are exactly where, the gun, uh, the shootings and the gun related homicides have gone up. So these things can be related. But I think journalistically and just sort of talking about it, it's not to get to the oh, no, no, this is not happening conclusion. It's Look, to get. I, yeah. Yeah. And I suppose just to, to clarify that I should probably not do the opposite of that and say, well, this is obviously because of, of, of what's happened uh, with the police in Portland or the police in Minneapolis. But it does, it's very suggestive in that July, there were 63 shootings. In Portland in July of last year, there were 28. That's a 125 percent increase. Yeah, so that's and I, pretty. And curious. I'm sure. And, and like again, we don't know how much of it is like pent up. We're all snakes in a can, and we open up mm-hmm. the can in terms of coronavirus, right. and it sure. explodes out, and that's Absolutely. part of it too. But I think that it's probably. I'm guessing that it's probably not a coincidence 
that some of the places with the, the sharpest spikes are Portland, Oregon, Minneapolis, Minnesota, and New York City. I mean, it just yeah. it, it it kind of that maps onto some of what we know about about these things, and it's okay to make a you know preliminary guess about this without coming to broad sweeping conclusions. And there's something insidious, I think, about the journalistic habit of saying like, oh dear, you know, we should be super careful about even acknowledging that crime has gone up. Um, and we talked about this in the episode with Wes Lowry, and it's uh, been a bugaboo of mine about uh, the turns of journalistic uh, mores and, and ethics um, after uh, World War II and, and sort of the consolidation of newspapers. There was a sense that tabloid coverage, meaning covering crime, is inherently bad because we're going to have to say that a lot of the people committing crimes were from underprivileged minorities and that's kind of bad if we're whipping that up we have to be super careful about that like or maybe you should cover crime <laughs> yeah and, and look the one thing that i would wish that people would do um is that learn the lessons of your political enemies or think of the things that you say to attack your political enemies and try to always remember them and apply them to yourself so for instance um, you know, I think it's it's a smart thing to go back and look at how Republicans and Democrats, actually, almost everybody after 9-11 reacted to a horrifying event. And, you know, George Floyd, quite different, but let's just say it's a horrifying event, too, and people wanted action immediately. And the action immediately after um, the attacks of September 11th was, of course, uh, Afghanistan, which was ill-conceived in a lot of ways. It was it was the right thing to do in a lot of ways. It was ill-conceived in a lot of ways too, which is why it became America's longest and almost like most fruitless war. Um, the other thing, big thing is of course, you know, Homeland Security, uh, the, the, you know, department that didn't exist that people don't often remember that didn't exist prior to 9-11 and all of the new laws and things that gave Glenn Greenwald a career and John Yu a career on the other side that happened uh, after 9-11 because people were in a hurry and in a rush to do something, to do something, do anything. So I don't think that the people that were marching up and down my street, banging pots and pans and saying defund the police had given it much thought. And then when you criticized it, at the time, when one criticized it at the time, you're saying, well, you got, you don't really understand what they mean by defund the police. It's actually a lot more complicated than that. I'm like, okay, well then don't, we'll call it something else. Call it uh, reform the police, but you don't want to do that. You want to have this sort of big, enormous statement in the wake of the tragedy and the murder of George Floyd. That's not wise. It is not wise, particularly because when there are that many people out there doing that, people actually sit up and notice the media is, you know, uh, supporting it in a lot of ways. And when it, it, it sort of strokes its chin and says, hmm, there are, a lot of people were attacked for even asking that question. And, you know, it's something that was really poorly thought through. And what this was, I mean, look, there are criminologists that look at this stuff over decades and then within three days, there are people that I know posting things on fucking Instagram saying, we don't need the police anymore. Are you sure <laughs> about that? I'm not so sure about that. And, you know, I'm not like a like a rah-rah cops kind of guy. Yeah, you're kind of getting there. Well, you know what? It's I have to check myself, too, because I often realize that I'm defending something because I hate its opponents so much, <laughs> which is a thing that you also have to guard against. We call that Gutfeld disease. Oh, is that what that? <laughs> I know. I used to call it Breitbart disease, uh, based on like you know, Greg's from Berkeley, Breitbart was from Brentwood. So people who were born and raised surrounded 
by super irritating lefties can't see anything else. They're like consumed yeah. by it. Um, yeah. which is why a lot of people, my theory was that a lot of people who were just otherwise libertarians, um, were, became super pro war, um, after nine yeah. 11, cause they were so pissed off at hippies. And uh, I mentioned this in the Patreon, but I'll do this for everybody else here. Um, but you should, should subscribe to the Patreon because beyond the fact that you get extra amazing episodes where we're a little looser and a little more offensive, uh, you also get these fantastic uh, recommendations from all three of us. And uh, the one that I brought up last time was I'm reading Robert Draper's book about uh, how America got into Iraq, the New York Times uh, reporter, and it is uh, really, really good. And we're going to try to get him on the show. I'm going to try to do that next week because it's a, it's a, it's a terrific book, and it's an incredible thing to revisit. Which is why I kind of make that comparison of let's not do that. Which is, I mean, remembering that the skepticism from the intelligence communities in certain places, and not so much in other places, about going to war with Iraq, there, there was a thing that you cannot quantify and you cannot appropriately explain now, which is that it was rather easy to get people to agree to uh, war with almost anyone at that point, because it was like, who do we hit? Let's hit them. Let's hit them now. Now, obviously, it took a little longer uh, with Iraq, and that happened in early 2003, but that there is still a lot of bloodlust at that point. So uh, Before we lose the topic. Uh, I don't want to lose topic, the thread, but just that was a No, no, I just, I just <laughs> it, it, uh, it suggested it earlier. Just want to say our good friend uh, Jacob Siegel wrote a tremendous piece for Tablet about Afghanistan. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and go read it. Go on. Uh, who's, yeah. And, and so, by the way, he served in Afghanistan too. Yes. That's right. Military yes. intelligence officer. Mention, mentions all of that in the piece. Just, just I mean, characteristically Siegel good. Um, before we move on from the police stuff, uh, there was a leaked body cam footage of George Floyd's arrest, which surprisingly didn't make much uh in the way of waves this week i I really just didn't see much coverage of it um in fact there's a sense in which it almost makes sense that it didn't make a lot of of waves i mean people have seen what happened here i imagine a lot of people probably didn't necessarily want to watch the body cam footage maybe didn't imagine there was much they could learn from it um and there wasn't much in the way of sort of new revelations here but it is interesting to see um the body cam footage because it does line up pretty well with the police report that we got, um, which probably isn't surprising because as I actually heard Pete uh, Moscos uh, talk about recently, um, who I I guess we just mentioned John Jay not too long ago um, where he is um, this in this particular case, pretty much everyone (laughs) ran away from the officers involved in this situation and has condemned this as unnecessary and wrong. Um, But in the video, you do see some things that at least seem to complicate the picture a little bit, um, which again, while still consistent with the video, um, consistent with the police report, are not things that folks are generally paying much attention to. The fact that Floyd was saying he couldn't breathe while walking um, and handcuffed, and him actually resisting and asking to not be put into the police car because he was feeling claustrophobic um, and essentially asking to be placed on the ground. Um, You know, does that change the outcome? Obviously not. Um, Does it mean that he did not die as a result of the police officer putting his knee on his neck? That is, as it stands, a somewhat uncertain fact. 
Um, but it is interesting that this doesn't seem to to make much in the way of waves. I, I did notice a moment ago, Moynihan, you used the word murder when you were describing the situation. And I find myself yeah. still just instinctively saying that George Floyd died in police police custody um, because there is a difference between the two things and it hasn't yet been adjudicated um, despite the fact that I think yeah. most Americans at this point believe that they know for a certainty that he was murdered. Um, it's probably about yeah, as many Americans just to clarify, that he I was murdered because he's I don't black. know that. I don't know that. Um, but my the sort of governing assumption here is that if George Floyd didn't have an interaction with the police that day, he'd be alive. And that yeah. strikes me as true. And um, what that is categorized, murder, you know, it's not for me to to say. And it's where, it's where you get in, into trouble because, you know, you say something and you say mm-hmm. the wrong thing and you're not actually qualified to, to, to talk about what this actually is. Is this murder? Is it is it manslaughter? Is it whatever? And it's, people are going to pile on you for your mm-hmm. ignorance, um, which I'm just declaring up front. But what I said to you, actually, when we were talking about this um, and talking about the video was you pointed out the breathing thing. And the only thing that made me me think was recall that there was an autopsy from the Minneapolis, uh, well, something police, police, police department, but, but from the city. Mm-hmm. And it said that he did not die from the knee on the neck. That's basically what it said, right? I mean, that's kind of the gist of it. Um, the family ordered a independent autopsy, um, as they should do and as they're right to do, and mm-hmm. came to a very it, different Independent in, in scare quotes. It, well, independent, yeah. I mean, they, they, <laughs> yeah. it's the families, right? I mean, so yes. it's, it's the not... the family's so, autopsy, financed I mean, by the family. The scare quotes should always be used or should frequently be used in the standard autopsy because standard yeah, that, autopsies that too. I mean, are carried yeah, out also by people... Say, who, yeah, it's uh, essentially a police oftentimes autopsy. Have yes, mm-hmm. it's a police autopsy, and we don't. Yeah, and, and, and everybody has a motive here to to soft pedal or, or or you know emphasize a certain part of of the autopsy. The thing that it made me wonder of saying he couldn't breathe uh, beforehand um, is what was you know if if there is a problem with that autopsy, and if it was political, if it was clearly. Uh, negligence on on the part of the person who performed it. Mm-hmm. One would expect them to be fired. One would expect an investigation into them. And I w- I'm interested to know what the differences are between the two of those. And I suppose that'll come out at the trial, right? That that's that's probably something we're going to come across uh, at Derek Chevin's trial. But it's an interesting one, right? I mean, because if it is that dramatically different, we're saying we're not coming to this conclusion at all. Then both of these these medical examiners will point out what their evidence is, and it'd just be interesting to look at. I don't think it changes uh, much for me, mm-hmm. uh, but but you know it's it's an interesting uh, thing to look at. I think it's still very much the case that if you are in police custody and you say that you are having trouble breathing, one of the principal responsibilities of the arresting officer is to make sure you're okay. Like that's, yeah, and that's despite the fact the that job. everyone says that all the time, and that's what cops say, uh-huh. that like every yep. time you arrest somebody, they say, they also say everybody says the cuffs are too tight. It's, you know, I can't breathe, sure. the cuffs are too tight, et cetera. Yep. But, you it's know. still your job. It's still your still job. your job to make you sure still, they're okay. You still have to that's make sure. That's your responsibility. Because guess what? Sometimes that's going to be the case, and it's not going to mm-hmm. be somebody crying uh, wolf. I mean, it's, yeah, it, the whole thing is a, 
is a shame. And and um, I, it'll be interesting to see uh, the smoke. I mean, you saw it with the Mike, Michael Brown case in Ferguson as the riots died down, as the immediate political uh, repercussions of it died down, that they, we got some sort of clarity about it. And the investigations that were, you know, Eric Holder's Justice Department investigations were fairly interesting to read. And because they were so long after the fact, they didn't actually penetrate the the national psyche and which is why I saw a number of hands up, don't shoot uh, demonstrations here in New York City. People chanting that with their hands up, which um, was not something that the investigators found was actually said. Right. Uh, but that that doesn't matter because you know it, this this happens long after the fact. Ferguson um, and maybe more like George Floyd than uh, Trayvon Martin case, for example, which is another one mm-hmm. of these um, places where the narrative of the event ultimately kind of wins in the public consciousness regardless of what actually took place on the ground but the ferguson thing quickly became about the police reaction to the protests as much as anything else and sure um and uh, and so that kind of colored it but i think people do get their first strong kind of mythos around a thing um trayvon martin is probably the, the greatest example of that i mean we Jacob Solomon wrote a thousand pieces um, talking about how the the actual facts of the Trayvon Martin, George Zimmerman transaction just don't resemble hardly at all what the general uh, portrayal was. Uh, but people affix onto uh, a narrative and a use. Um, and then, you know what? Everyone has a limited amount of time, especially now in a kind of coronavirus. I mean, Camille, you point out that this thing didn't seem to penetrate well nothing seems to penetrate right now there are news doesn't break through so you know there was like a mini nuclear bomb that wasn't a nuclear bomb in beirut and we all saw it because it was on twitter and there's footage and we've already already forgotten about it it's amazing well it's because it wasn't it wasn't a terrorist attack but this that that would have changed a little bit but yeah it's really hard for anything to bust through right now but the george floyd of it all given the continuing resonance of this story in the public consciousness the ripple effects of it are obviously still happening and i would have suspected that maybe there is something um in that story that's of interest to people i and i i wonder if the if george floyd himself and the case itself is already being forgotten and people would say that's insane i mean the people still in the streets but the actual case itself i mean as the catalyst is that, okay, that's done, and now we've moved on. It will revisit it when there are people hauled in front of a judge. Um, so that'll be slightly different, and, and it'll you know, come back into the public consciousness again. But right now, it is a thing that happened and was seized upon by people. And by the way, I don't say that in a, like a negative or condescending way. It was seized upon them. Like, you know, this is what you do in politics. This is what you do um, when you're you're pushing a particular agenda. You seize upon moments in which um, you can pass legislation. You can kind of change the debate and the public discourse, uh, which I think is totally fine. I mean, a lot of the stuff that is, is being pushed, I'm not totally fine with. But mm-hmm. um, I think that that's, you know, in, in, in the same thing is true when, when you said uh, what Jacob Selvin wrote about uh, the Trayvon Martin thing is that that became just a symbol, you know, iced tea and Skittles. 
right? Or, or as mm-hmm. Al Sharpton said, IT and skillets, which is a great clip of him on saying that. Um, <laughs> swear to God, it's great. Um, but that's what it became. The hoodie, he could have been my son. That's it. And then, of course, to, to, just to, to circle back on that uh, small thing, when you said that, it then became about the police reaction in Ferguson. It, well, another thing that colored the, the, the Trayvon Martin thing is that George, uh, uh, George Zimmerman's a piece of shit. Yeah. He's just a bad person. I mean, well, that, from, that, would, uh, that would that would become much more apparent over time. Over time, yeah, yeah over yeah. time, <laughs> yeah. I mean, not immediately. In the immediate um, aftermath, that wasn't completely obvious. It was the first thing. It was the first time that I ever saw in a newspaper the phrase "white Hispanic." But yeah. I remember the first thing after that. I was like, "Wait, what is that?" Yeah. Wait, well, is that's that that's because all the early reports were just like, "He's a white guy. He's a white guy. He's a white guy. White Hispanic." Oh um, yeah. yeah, yeah. So anyway, but uh, there you go. Well, where, where else do we go, gentlemen? Maybe we, we could talk a little bit about the Veep race and you could tell me, Matt, why are you excited about the possibility of <laughs> Susan <laughs> Rice? You're, 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 there's no excitement in this question. It's so not. there's no excitement. Like, uh, do we care about this? Care. Yeah, nobody care. cares. Do we care? I, just, I don't care. I love the idea that Susan Rice is, uh, is you know, exactly who Joe Biden needs. I mean, Kamala Harris is, she? is her own. No, my God, no, Susan Rice. <laughs> I, do you really want an excuse for people to talk about Benghazi for the next three months? Because oh, that's what happens. <laughs> she was the person who went uh, in front of the networks and lied her face off about that and was the worst about that. Um, mm-hmm. And this, this is regardless of whether you think that Trey Gowdy was an absolute clown during the Benghazi hearings. Of course he was. And of course, Republicans were ridiculous and almost always were focusing on the wrong bit of that. What was offensive was the way that Susan Rice, Hillary Clinton and other people first um, uh, approved and high fived each other about toppling Muammar Gaddafi to begin with, which is Mm -hmm. bad foreign policy mistake, arguably the worst of uh, Obama's presidency. Um, Bad enough. But then after people stormed the, um, the whatever it was, uh, in Benghazi and killed four Americans. They're like, yeah, it was because of a YouTube video, uh, which they kept saying, they kept saying, and it was BS. Um, and, uh, and BS in a way that actually is kind of deleterious to the culture and practice of free speech in ways that people have already forgotten about. Like the dude's YouTube videos, the guy was from, I believe, uh, Carson or Artesia, California, very close to where I grew up. Um, who's just like this rando, crazy person um mm. but his videos were then taken down i believe in egypt and in turkey or like in two or three places um the u.s government tried to get uh youtube to take it down in america the um, innocence of muslims the innocence right? of muslims yes. thank yes. you for yes. remembering that i was gonna say something but it's gonna come out as like a porn title that i remember from like <laughs> teenage <laughs> indiana joan and the black hole of mamu uh no that wasn't what, that one what what? <laughs> I wish this was a video podcast. You see Camille's eyes that just got That's, wider than his. Yeah, yeah. He's That's, going to the next room and just going to start ordering stuff. Uh, uh, oh uh, no, but like it. But she uh, miss and the administration and she was the point person for that. Misrepresented that in a really awful way, and also we're like wrong. Joe Biden in the various histories of the Obama administration the ones that focus on foreign policy, he actually comes off as a comparative dove 
which is surprising because that's not been his long track record. And he has a kind of interesting story about that, that he can never tell because he can't talk. But um, uh, which is he sort of actually does feel some sense of um, guilt or wrongness about Iraq. And so during the Obama administration, whenever they wanted to intervene in Syria, um, certainly in Libya, he was always kind of the loudest voice in the room saying no, um, which is the only time I'm going to get close to liking uh, Joe Biden is uh, is is for that. So why would you have Susan Rice, who is a Hillary hawk, um, who's bad at talking uh, in front of people like she's the go, you know, watch her YouTube clips of when she went on all the Sunday chat shows on Sun, you know, September, whatever, 2012. Uh, it's bad. It's bad. And her talking about it and being uh, in front of Congress. So, yeah, I think she's not good. Kamala Harris is not good. And I don't know. There's the Castro lady, um, the Castro Scientology lady, Karen Bass. I'm not sure that she's very good either. So I, I don't know who else is being considered. I, I, I could care less. But well, I officer, should care. Officer Harris, definitely. Officer Harris is, yeah. but I, I should care because that person is going to be the president. Um, yeah. Either how, when, the, when, how quickly? Well, like, the, the de facto like, president for a little bit, or you know, January, said, January twenty twenty one. Yes, and Biden said he's only going to to um, serve one term. So if he Wait, wins, has he has he said that? Yeah, I think he did. Didn't he? I don't know. So it'd be kind of. Oh, I thought he did. Let's I find mean, out. It's, it's obviously. You might have hinted. True. Um, God, I really <laughs> thought he did. Maybe I just maybe that was a dream that I had because it's yeah. demonstrably true that he can. He, if he serves one month, I'd be impressed. But uh, but is that not true? Can yeah, I don't think he's. I don't think he said it outright. Um, but yeah, I don't think he said it outright, but yeah, he has back in the, the, towards the end of last year, there was reporting suggesting he had indicated to aides that he would do that. Yeah. Um, may, yeah. But, yeah, yeah. but I think there's been reluctance to publicly suggest that he would not seek a second term. So yeah. I can clean this up. Yeah. No, it's no, no, it, actually, it's, it's, no, it's, it's fine because, because it's reflective um, of the fact that like, who the, Right. Yeah, so no. right. signal. Yeah. yeah, it was a Ryan Lizza story of December of last year. That was the one that I read. Yeah, I mean, I I completely believe that. I mean, it yeah. would be yeah. a coherent and reasonable thing to do. Um, I, I should say he also, didn't say it publicly, but he said it to yeah. other people. <laughs> it, it also makes complete sense that he wouldn't want to say it publicly. There's yeah. all these concerns about your mental fitness and your well-being and your advanced age. I mean, advanced. I mean, they, I mean, Nancy Pelosi. They don't, they don't even have to doctor the videos with you, Joe. No, they no, just there's no fix. The video. <laughs> it's not like the Nancy Pelosi thing. Yeah, I mean, the deep fix. Slow it down. If we slowed like it down, no one would believe that. Yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> no you have, like Nancy Pelosi, Mitch McConnell, uh, Donald Trump, Joe Biden. What's the average age there? Seventy-eight, something like that. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. a pretty old crew. It's you know, and it's so funny that during during the Democratic primary and going to Bernie things before COVID, and it was like, you know, the young people in the Democratic Party are going to to lead us into the future. And it's like, no, nah, it's still going to be a bunch tried. of old people. They, they well, tried. they tried. Yeah. Um, I, just to point out quickly that uh, I, I don't know if this was um, after we started recording or right before that um, Donald Trump uh, signed an executive order banning transactions with ByteDance, the the uh, parent company of TikTok, so that will be in uh, beginning in forty five days. Any 
U.S. transaction with ByteDance, who owns the Chinese company that owns TikTok, will be prohibited. Uh, congratulations, <laughs> so, America. Also, I think uh, he's talking about re-upping um, aluminum tariffs against Canada. Uh, that's, that's going that, to happen. Yeah, that's, that's going to happen. That's going to be exciting. And it was a, before that was a 10% and I think a 25% on steel and aluminum. And because uh, people are preferring um, aluminum coming in from Canada as uh, slightly cheaper, apparently, uh, that he said that a move needs to be made to protect American manufacturers. I went to two aluminum smelters uh, that were reopening because of the trade war and listened to the case that these guys made to me of why this was uh, necessary. And apparently they need to be bailed out even further from our northern neighbor because the concern that they all put to me was China. This cheap Chinese aluminum was a problem. But apparently Canadian aluminum is also a problem. Anybody competing with them seems to be a problem. So do you remember that when, is amazing to me. Do you remember when mm. people, uh, a-holes like us perhaps, and certainly Republicans and conservatives, uh, beat up on the Obama administration? And Joe Biden was part of this for sure for not just the General Motors uh, bailout, but for the fact that they did that. And then after the government sold its shares, lost $11 billion. Like, mm. it wasn't like... It they claimed they broke even, right? Uh, they did, but then like the Inspector General report and everything, they, they, they lost <laughs> they lost money. Um, and so $11 billion, you know, that used to be a lot of money in federal government uh, speak. Um, Trump's bailout to just farmers um, as like uh, to help them with the trade war with China um, was $12 billion. Yes. The first year, 16 billion the second year, and 19 billion uh, in 2020 pre COVID. So it's going to be, I think, 11 jillion billion uh, now with coronavirus. And, and people just sort of shrug it off. We're going to have permanent um, subsidy bailouts for the agriculture industry on top of the existing agricultural subsidies, which, we've which done for were a long time, yeah. temporary emergency measures done in the 1930s yes. have never gone away. Um, and, and people just like, ah, that's fine. That's, you know, that's, that's normal. It's not normal. It's uh, like the Trump was supposed to get us out of these disastrous trade deals and negotiate all these new ones. Yeah. Where's, where, where's the new ones? I mean, he like, he, he moved a few like seashells around on NAFTA, called it Trumpta, and uh, and then that's basically oh it. There, there hasn't been, uh, there haven't been, uh, there there isn't a vision to replace the trading order that came before. We no longer um, like the WTO doesn't exist as an enforcement mechanism anymore. Um, the amount of the U.S. used to be the place that uh, made the strongest case to other countries, including China to not subsidize, not have state-owned companies in the middle of stuff that you get you in trouble with the WTO. We don't do that anymore because there's no more enforcement mechanism of it. Um, we are subsidizing our own stuff like crazy. And so everyone's like, yeah, screw it. Um, and like, uh, like there isn't, there wasn't any like pot at the end of the rainbow of protectionism. Um, yeah. It, it, no, I mean, there's, Let's okay. Let's think of the the argument, the counter argument um, to globalization, which is you know free trade is something that that most economists agree on. Just the sort of broader 
kind of top level idea of, of trade being a net positive is something that a lot of most economists for years and years and years agreed on. There's been some recent work, uh, a guy at MIT named David Otter, uh, A-U-T-O-R, who uh, wrote a piece, basically, uh, wrote, has written a bunch of, done a bunch of uh, academic work on this, saying, uh, suggesting that the free trade with China was uh, a lot more damaging than we had originally suspected it would be. There's a lot of pushback on that stuff. You can go to Russ Roberts, uh, his podcast, and you can hear their conversations were actually pretty interesting. Um, but if we, if we accept Russ is, that that Russ is, is always good, R- Russ is always interesting. And I like the fact that he's, he tries not to be on the news cycle. So you always just have this escape into super nerdy econ topics. And, and he's very, very good at his job. Mm-hmm. So you should listen to, to econ talk, Russ Roberts podcast. But, um, it's, it's a, it's, I'll, I'll warn you, it's very nerdy, uh, econ stuff. It's not, not, it's not Freakonomics, right? Okay. Um, but if we accept that David Otter thesis and essentially the Trump thesis, the Lighthizer thesis, um, that, you know, the hauling out of the middle class is because of trade, et cetera. A couple of targeted, um, tariffs, border adjustment tariffs from Mexico, uh, China, our allies, remember that, there was uh, plopped on the EU, and Canada. Okay, so we did that. What has been the result, right? I mean, we can look at it in two ways. We can say, what has been the result in the sense of, has it made consumer goods more expensive for Americans? Is our things at Walmart more expensive, et cetera? Or, you know, there's a million loopholes, by the way, of course, and all of these things, and you could apply for exemptions because, I mean, I visited a, a factory in Missouri that's uh, American-made nail factory, right? Uh, but they imported their their steel for the nails from Mexico, and they had to get an exemption to make their nails at a kind of cheap, you know, it was a fairly cheap uh, product. But you know, if they didn't get the exemption, the protection uh, would actually hurt them. So the American company would be worse off if the Trump administration was protecting them from Mexican competition. It's a very complicated thing. But at the end of this, what happened? That's, I mean, we're a little bit into this, so we can actually get a sense of what happened because, you know, people that are on the left who oppose globalization and free trade say, well, we have to have a welfare apparatus, a training system, et cetera, for those people who no longer can do their jobs because Chinese people, because people in, in, in Pakistan, people in, in you know India, wherever, make this stuff in a much cheaper way. We used to make it here. We don't anymore. Okay, fine. So what we have to do with those people is we have to train them. We have to have these welfare programs. We have to have transfer payments, et cetera. That hasn't happened. I mean, Donald Trump did not create a new regime except for what Matt Welsh just pointed out, paying farmers directly who are hurt because it's a one-way street to dumb people. There's a lot of dumb people that talk about politics in this country. I hope, dear listeners, you don't think the three of us are among them. But a lot of dumb people think this is a one-way street. We get things from China, destroys. No, no, no. All those farmers, why are they getting subsidies? Because they sell their fucking shit to China, to Asia. The number of pigs and the hog farms, that stuff goes overseas. And now it's screwed up everything. So they're paying for this. We're paying and paying and paying. Who is it benefiting? At the end of the day, if consumers are being hurt by by small but rising prices, we're paying enormous amount of money out of the government coffers to prop up farm, farmers and other people too. There's other other um, versions of this in other industries. Was this a success? Because I'm going to suspect that it probably wasn't. Um, so where do we where do we go from here? 
It was a success. Everyone hates trade now, apparently. It, but that's also not true, which is one of the interesting bits about it. It was su- Publicly a, they do. a success, um, to be sure, I mean, for, politicians, by the way. for trade lobbyists. <laughs> We've never seen the amount of lobbying that goes for those exemptions. So that's yeah. absolutely been a boom to the lobbying business. They've never seen anything like this. Um, maybe maybe during Reagan, because he was a little bit loose with the tariffs as well, mm-hmm. um, punitive tariffs. Um, but uh, public attitudes... Um, have not been more favorable towards trade in a long time, but the, but elite attitudes are That's exactly right. That's what I yeah have turned not necessarily because elites uh, no longer believe in trade, but they think that the rubes have turned against it. They think that Donald Trump won because of an anti-trade message, and if there's an argument for that, I get that. I think there's um, probably some truth to that, and certainly in the in the in the uh, Midwest and such. Um, mm-hmm. But there's an overcorrection. I think probably associated with that. And we've already seen Republican attitudes now finally start to split from Trump. Like Trump has been anti-trade. We've mentioned many times this is like the only consistent politics he's had in his whole career policy ideas. Um, he's always been anti-trade. It just sort of like he feels that in a, in a fundamental way. And Republicans went with him. I mean, Mike Pence went with him. Stephen Moore went with him. All these totally shameless opportunists went with him um, because he won and they wanted to have proximity to power. Um, and Republican voters did, too, because, you know, just as they went with him towards suddenly not being so hostile to Russia and other weird, you know, uh, eccentricities about Donald Trump. Um, but that has started to change over the last like six months or so. Uh, attitudes are starting to go back northward. So um, it's very interesting. Like Trump wins barely, doesn't win the popular vote, but like it's a fluke and people are traumatized by it. And so. They perhaps overanalyze this and then maybe undercount the backlash to Trump. And there's a reason to undercount the backlash when it comes from Democrats. Do we really believe that Democratic public opinion is going to be solidly pro-trade from now on? Yeah, no, I don't. You know what you could do if you were a Democrat um, in Wisconsin, an important state, right? Run a local ad. I'll give you an ad. I'm going to give you an idea, Democrats. Here's an ad that you should run because Donald Trump is full of shit. And Donald Trump has, if you go to a Trump rally, and I've been to many of them, that, you know, this is the man for the working man. If it wasn't a number of people that I spoke to, and I mentioned this all the time, people were going to vote for Bernie, um, but they believe that uh, Hillary Clinton uh, robbed him in the primary, and so they voted for Donald Trump because he was the man who was talking about the working class, etc. Let's remember something that was a big fucking deal for Donald Trump. And we have very short memories because Donald Trump is, is an idiot... Uh, savant in this way. It's a total mistake. But when you make so many mistakes, as Donald Trump does, people tend to forget all of the things that you promised them. I mean, you know, out in the sort of broader society. I mean, people locally who are promised things and screwed over remember it. But let's remember Foxconn. Never mm-hmm. forget Foxconn, right? Foxconn, I went to that facility. I was stopped three times by the police trying to get into that facility, who are incredibly nice, by the way. Um, they were like, yeah, no, well, we get you, it. Because, they kept because on calling because we were filming around it, right? And we were filming this one woman who wouldn't sell his, <laughs> to me, wouldn't sell her, her house uh, to, to Foxconn. Uh, that, that woman, you know, one house plopped in the middle because Donald Trump was going to, you know, make iPhones and make, you know, laptops and the rest of it in America. Foxconn was going to do it. And she resisted. Do you know that that plant still has not opened? It is 2020, and that plant has not opened. 
And Foxconn has made some noises. Oh, we're going to do this. And, and by the way, the mission has completely changed. Yep. We're doing, we're doing uh, like fifth generation wireless, AI applications, all this stuff. Not what Donald Trump said was going to happen there. And the Nothing has work- happened for four years. The number of workers, even in the in like the proposed final uh, number, has it's like one tenth. It's some like absurdly small, absurdly. And, and you know the the amount the state of Wisconsin spent in tax breaks of getting a Chinese company to come here and do fuck all for four years is alarming. So I would make a little ad of like, you know, all those things of Donald Trump standing there at the at the groundbreaking. We're going to bring all the Apple products home and the rest of it and then just show that empty field. There's a building on There's a couple of buildings on it. There's nothing happening there. Still mounds of dirt and the rest of it. Well, that was a year and a half ago. And but nobody have, there. And you have the trifecta Thanks, guys. too. Because it wasn't just Donald Trump. It was Paul Ryan and it was Paul Scott Ryan Walker. and Scott Walker, like and they was, gave away the farm. And that's yeah. the thing that at the end of the day, we realize that people who care about, you know, a particular um, angle on economics, maybe something that should get people like uh, Paul Ryan and Scott Walker out of the business of trying to guide the economy. We have lost in a way that is incalculable at the moment, because, the, I mean, when you look at, you know, what the government has done um, for the COVID bailouts. I mean, people are going to see this as being successful and working and uh, the stock market's humming along, the economy hasn't collapsed. Uh, and then, you know, propping up farmers, paying to get people here for for uh, to build iPhones. It's not going to happen. We don't need to build iPhones here. We don't need to assemble things here. Why are we doing this? Is this our competitive advantage? No, it is not. And any economist, anybody can can, can tell you that. But... If you can get the the sort of fake idea that you're the working class guy and you're bringing these jobs back, at least now, four years later, you can at least go to someplace in Wisconsin and say, I thought you were going to save our jobs. What happened? I thought you were going to, uh, you know, create jobs. I mean, he was going to save jobs at, uh, what's it called? The air conditioner place. Right. Yeah, yeah. What the hell is that called? God, I'm just, so many bullshit things from the 2016 campaign. The carrier? The carrier? That carrier, yeah. Yeah. Carrier. Nice. Mexico. And, and the reason yeah. the carrier was being saved quote unquote, and the reason that they they uh, gave in to the pressure of Donald Trump is mm-hmm. they have enormous numbers of government contracts. Yeah. Right around the corner was a company called Rexnord and Rexnord makes ball bearings and Donald Trump tweeted at them a few days later after he appeared at Carrier or maybe it was before he appeared at Carrier and said, we're going to prevent that. They were sending their um, factory to Monterey, Mexico. He said, we're going to do mm-hmm. it for you too. Guess what? Didn't do shit in all those jobs into Monterey, Mexico. The people in those factories trained their replacements the Mexican people from Monterey came up, they trained them on the machines, they sent all the machines down there, and it, and it disappeared. Donald Trump right. said he was going to save it and didn't do anything, and the reason is he had no leverage, and the government cannot do anything unless they give away the farm, give away taxpayer money, or promise a company some, you know, giveaway with, with federal government uh, contracts. It's disgusting. So a few things. Um, one, to, to harken back to something we talked about earlier, the FBG Duck song... Um, it was called <laughs> Dead Bitches. And the oh, bitches in that song, this yes. was, he was not referring to women. He was actually referring to his ops who had been murdered. Not mm. necessarily suggesting that he perpetrated those murders, mm-hmm. but he was clowning them for having been murdered. Mm-hmm. And days later, he himself is got. Um, so that is probably a little less than surprising to most folks. But related to China, 
Um, I wanted to chat briefly about the TikTok situation in a little bit more detail and maybe more broadly, um, just sort of the the difficult situation that the U.S. finds itself in and the conversations that I've been having with people recently about this fundamental challenge with having a major trading partner, not merely being a strategic rival, but in many, many, many ways, like being a hostile force that you have to be very thoughtful about how you engage with. Um, certainly my inclination is to encourage trade and to to say that even with your rivals, it is better to trade than to, you know, discharge weapons and have a nasty fight. Um, but with China, and I'll direct this at you first, Matt, are you at all, at all inclined to endorse some of the tougher policies that are essentially supposed to make China pay for the things that they've done with Hong Kong, for the various corporate espionage tactics that they've employed, for atrocious Uyghur revelations that aren't quite revelations. It's just further confirmation that this is going on. What are, um, what are even, the policies that address Hong Kong and the Uyghur population? I'm, I'm I think ignorant in, of that. I think in general, the some of the tariffs um, and more recently the bans on um, CCP personnel being able to like own property here in the States and just jamming them up in general in terms of their money that they may have parked in different places. I don't think like the tariffs, a lot of that. The tariffs are not conditional on human rights in any way, shape or form. No, not the tariffs. That's what I was saying. But the, the recent action with the CCP leadership um, essentially being blocked from doing various things like that was directly taken in response to Hong Kong. I am uh, generally speaking against economic sanctions. I think the Mm -hmm. literature has shown on a consequentialist kind of grounds that they almost never um, lead to the result that they're intended to, um, to apply. Um, There's South Africa. Apartheid is probably the, biggest uh, counterexample of that. There's other things that were going on there as well. Um, but that they end up hurting populations instead of helping them and entrenching governments instead of hurting them because they can make a nationalist claim. However, of the kinds of sanctions that I do agree with, it is um, it's that level. Uh, I don't know, mm-hmm. uh, the, you know, Global Magnitsky, which sounds like a, a weird another weird porn, porno movie from the 1980s. <laughs> Um, Not a very good one. No, a really bad one. Um, but uh, going after individual uh, mal actors in a regime who you absolutely know to be criminal thugs and saying, you can't have a bank account in my country, you can't travel in my country. That is the uh, type of sanction um, that is the only one that I, that I think is, is worth considering at all. The problem with... Uh, this administration's transactional nature and specifically with its uh, so-called trade deal with China, with its phase one and phase two, is that it puts China in the driver's seat of fulfilling phase two, which is we're going to buy X amount of soybeans from American farmers in order to show our bona fides and whatever. Um, when those things have been happening, you see Trump's comments at sensitive moments in the China negotiations. It because this is who he is, you'll say, well, I don't really want to say anything about Hong Kong right now because we're trying to get a trade deal done. All right. Um, that I mean, he said things along along those lines. Like I told Xi um, that, you know, 
hopefully don't do do too many bad things here, whatever. But like he's conscious of his own deal making. His deal making does not make our position vis-a-vis human rights in China stronger. It makes it weaker, generally speaking. Um, uh, not being involved in um, mediating trade organizations, whether the WTO, um, whether the TPP, which was supposed to ring around China, but like not having those relationships and also the way in which the U.S. has uh, inflamed and irritated relationships with its normal allies all over Western Europe and, and elsewhere. You want China is a multilateral prob- problem in addition to a bilateral problem. And you want to have friends who you can kind of agree with and you want to have some kind of mediating institutions um, in which your disputes can be resolved. Trump has has rejected both of those things. And that limits what you can do. And so then you start thinking, well, I'm transactional. I have to get this deal done. I am not going to, therefore, make a big stink about the Uyghurs because, as he has said, I don't think about the Uyghurs, but he certainly said about Russia and Afghanistan and other places like, well, you know, we've done bad things, too. Um, That's not helpful. Um, So uh, I think a president, you can do a lot. And Ronald Reagan, I think, uh, showed this pretty well. You can do a lot simply by surfacing issues, pointing a moral finger and otherwise not doing much. An American president, people generally speaking, are going to listen to. You could say that's bad. You could say I sympathize with Lech Walesa in 1980, 1981, without saying I'm going to do a damn thing really about it, uh, aside from, uh, you know, al- allowing more people to emigrate here and, you know, providing some kind of moral support. You could do things like that. Trump is incapable of that. So as a response to China's human rights problems and also its sort of territorial flexing around its its area and more kind of worryingly its budinskyisms in Africa and elsewhere Trump is is in a much less of a strong position to do anything about that uh, because of his base his base and transactional nature and his uh pervasive sense of amorality in general so um I think you separate, yeah. so you put the Uyghur problem over here, you put uh, predatory practices um, uh, in in a, a different basket. I don't have, uh, about the only thing that uh, I think that the Trump administration has done well, and I'm not an expert in this at all, um, but is you know pointing out that uh, China's attitudes towards IP um, has, has been predatory and confiscatory and that that should be surfaced more in bilateral relationships. Whether that has actually led to anything that's worth a damn, I have my doubts. Um, it's, a, it's a point to make, and the administration mm-hmm. has made that, and so that's good. But everything else, from my point of view, is not good. I don't see any evidence that his approach towards this relationship um, has been fruitful. And you see a lot of evidence just right now that the light bulb is over his head. It's like, cool, we're going to make China a big issue in this campaign. I'm going to campaign against red China and try to say that uh, Biden loves them. So mm-hmm. what's going to happen in the next 90 days in that relationship, in the, uh, you know, the, the falling apart of whatever trade deal that we have and all the follow on effects, I think it's all going to be bad. Well, with TikTok, it's an interesting thing because the people who are most affected by this can't vote. Right? <laughs> they're 12 years old. They're, like, oh, they're banning TikTok. Literally, my daughter yeah. said to me, did you know Trump's banning TikTok? I'm like, you're nine. We can't have this conversation. <laughs> but um, I think uh, the Easy most interesting- probably told her. 
Yeah, I think that's actually probably true. Um, I th- I think the interesting thing about this is China being the the thing that upended the idea that free market and free uh, free markets and free trade would inevitably uh, lead to democracy. Mm-hmm. Um, we saw that you know this was supposedly the case in in Chile and a bunch of other places, and China was the one that that screwed that up. The funny thing about it is that the opposite turned out to be true: is that human rights would improve in China if you know, markets opened up and, you know, democracy follows uh, markets and trade. And that when, when that turns out not to be true, it, the opposite turns out to be true in the sense that we cannot pressure, people are not willing to put an enormous amount of pressure on a country that they rely so heavily on financially. And it's amazing to me that the opposite uh, thing turned out to be, because uh, I would have guessed yeah, uh, you know, in the '80s, that this this would have been true. I mean, it, it happened in a little bit uh, in, in Vietnam, but uh, Vietnam is still a shitty dictatorship. Um, mm-hmm. But opened more than it was 20 years ago, for absolutely for sure. And you know, you could even say that about China, but that's more about technology than it is about the Chinese government. And the Chinese Communist Party has gotten uh, more brutal uh, since uh, Deng Xiaoping died. But yeah. Uh, that's why we can do little to to leverage the human rights issue because what are we all going to do? Get together and say, you know, we're not going to to interact with you uh, on a financial level. You can do that when a country is not necessary for our financial uh, or our economic survival. You can do mm-hmm. that to Iran um, because we can get oil uh, elsewhere. We can get oil at home now. We don't we don't need you, um, but we we need China. Uh, you know those human rights violations. They can do. They can. They can continue with impunity, and you can have videos that look like something out of um, you know a drone shot in uh, a sequel to Schindler's List of people blindfolded in a train station in rows, yeah. and it has literally zero effect. Does anyone thunderously attack China in the United Nations? Is the Human Rights Council, Council which is a which is a you know a, a nest of vipers anyway and human rights abusers are they taking this stuff up no of course not but china knows it can get away with it yeah I, i'm generally with you on this matt um I, I do find with tiktok for example and various other places where you know there might actually be more material security concerns like where china's building telecommunications equipment for example make have some contract to sell it to <laughs> to backbone telcos or to the U.S. government. Like, that seems a little bit more potentially disconcerting. One of the things that does stand out to me, though, is just how abysmal some of the reporting around this has been and the almost sort of determined obliviousness of like major mainstream journalists who find themselves equating the potential misdeeds of a Facebook um, to the potential misdeeds of a TikTok, as if Mark Zuckerberg is also, you know, the 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 leader of a totalitarian nation state that is actively hostile to the United States and its interests, um, and is engaged in like humanitarian awfulness. Like I think if it comes down to privacy concerns, I'm probably a little less concerned about Facebook than I am TikTok. And just in general, that doesn't really seem like something that needs to that needs to be difficult for me to acknowledge plainly and straightforwardly. 
But Camille, does anyone really care about privacy concerns with Facebook? Like, really care? Or do they That's actually, the is thing. that just a Trojan yeah. horse for an argument about they are allowing the proliferation of opinions that I don't like for my political enemies? I don't think there are many people who care. My, my general pro- perspective on this is um, that when it comes to actual users, it is very easy very, very, very easy for virtually no cost, um, and in some cases, literally no cost, to prevent outfits like Facebook and Google from tracking you all over the web and serving you really well-tailored ads. And by really well-tailored, I mean a little better than just completely blanketing you with nonsense that is completely irrelevant to you. But, you know, looking through some of your posts and your web history and serving up slightly more relevant ads for things that you might actually want to buy. I don't think most people are actually terribly concerned about it because they don't do anything about it. I mean, with Google, you can actually log in and turn off a lot of these settings on your own. Um, But either people don't know that this is happening or they don't generally care. Um, And I think there's a lot of disincentive um, for these companies um, with respect to going too far just because the press associated with it is so abysmally bad for them. Um, because but. because of uh, privacy concerns, mm-hmm. um, they Facebook shut down um, a number of years ago, but really fully shut it down a couple of years ago. Uh, the only tool that I ever used on Facebook, which was one of the most useful journalistic tools uh, that was amazingly underused, it was something called Graph Search. Mm-hmm. Uh, face, Facebook Graph Search, you could find in natural language you know, find so-and-so people who live in this town, in this state, who like, you know, Louis Farrakhan. And we give you a list of the people. And then you'd be like, oh, I can call these people and see why they like this group or why. And it was unbelievably helpful as a journalist. And all the people had to do was, and of course we, we infantilize everybody and say they're too stupid to figure this out on their own. And if they are so stupid, we have to remove the feature because they might not figure it out on their own, that they can turn that stuff off. You don't actually have to have that stuff. So graph search was not searching people. Um, I don't think it was knowingly searching people who had those things turned off and all their settings to private. Uh, that's a very easy thing to do on Facebook. Uh, they make it easier. They made it easier and easier over the years uh, because, you know, I mean, this is what happens like when people would order Ubers early days of Uber when you would have unbelievable surge pricing, they get wasted and then order an Uber and they'd take an Uber from Midtown Manhattan to Brooklyn and it'd be $600 and it'd be a news story the next day. Mm-hmm. Uber charges this and it's like, no, no, they agreed to it. And then Uber put like these three extra levels that you had to click through to agree to pay $600 <laughs> for a fucking mile and a half ride. <laughs> Facebook's the same thing. It, it tells you at every step of the way, these are what, this is what you're giving up, et cetera. That wasn't always the case. And so pushback on that was good. Because it made Facebook aware that they are accountable in these things. But that graph search tool, which I loved, and now since then I haven't used Facebook, is an enormously helpful tool as a kind of white pages for America. And but a white pages that actually had your interests in it. And you yeah. could like find the weirdest things. And I remember when I did a story for Newsweek one time, and I I, I would find these Al Qaeda pages that were had different names and I would say people in Brooklyn who like and it would the page and it would just give you a list. And I found like 50 people that were like supporting, you you know, proto ISIS type groups. And it was like, God, for law enforcement, this would take you 25 seconds to round up these people who are, or keep an eye on people who are clearly supporting psycho fascist terror groups. 
and that stuff disappeared. Um, and so that's my only personal experience, but I know that they have rolled up a lot of the stuff that, that created these privacy concerns. But I think most of it is bullshit. And you can see that from these hearings in which you have an incredibly powerful executive in Mark Zuckerberg and the others too, of course. Tim Cook is there and Jeff Bezos um, and the guy from Google, who I always forget his name. Um, mm-hmm. But what do they do? Al- Alphabet. Alphabet, sorry. The guy, the parent company, <laughs> Alphabet. But what do they do? You have guys like, you know, I was checking my email and I got a fucking ad here. What's, my what are dad, you doing? My dad uh, isn't getting my emails. I, I, Why isn't I my dad getting my emails? Because I supported, I don't support gay marriage. And it's like, this is seriously, this is our government. This is what's happening. If you go and watch that hearing, it is like a, a collection of grandparents talking to people about, you know, how do I get the scan? How do I scan the pictures? I mean, it's like, are you, this is what you do to these people? And then the, on the other end, it's people like hyperventilating. And it's like, God, what a missed opportunity for to, yeah. to ask all these people, have them collected about privacy concerns, about doing business with China, about what they do in search results in China, how they kowtow to, to the government. Oh, we're, we're obeying local laws. And that's a fascinating issue. None of that stuff really came yeah. up. And to, to the extent anyone actually asked a, a good question, they just don't allow you to, to answer the question. <laughs> oh, yeah, that was the <laughs> other thing. Yeah. <laughs> like, can, I, can I answer it? No. Yeah, no, I'm, no, no. I'm running out of time. I only have a limited amount of time, so that yeah. I don't need uh, you, yeah. Yeah, I'll just. I, I see the remainder of my time to the man outside <laughs> uh, selling pretzels. It's like, really? This is what the, the government is? Nobody gave a shit. It was an utter waste of time. Um, so, what? Any, anything else before we get out of here? Can I tell people to watch. Something with the dumbest name ever. Yes. Uh, that sounds... Bla- Blazing Saddles. Did you watch it? I did. What did you... I did, but, but, only, but only after watching... Uh, Matt, did you know that if you watch Blazing Saddles on HBO's new platform, that you will have to endure a three-minute introduction? It felt in like ten a minutes. Woman, a woman will explain to you no. that... Yes. They're going to use the word nigger. No, no, and no, no, yes. no. There's all sorts of horrible things in this film, but you need to know it's comedy. The good guys aren't the racists. Yep. They're using comedy as a weapon to <laughs> disempower the racists. In the three-minute uh, intro, do they once talk about the absolutely homophobic Don DeLuise character in the uh, in the you know uh, what <laughs> in the uh, in the uh, Hollywood uh, musical? Oh my director. god! In the beginning, poof. There's there's more than a few. There's more than a few homophobic slurs. When the guy comes up on him, um, who is uh, what's his name? The guy who's in um, in uh, the Kubrick uh, riding the bomb. What the hell's the guy's name? Yeah, yeah, Slim Pickens. Uh, uh, Slim Pickens. Um, yeah. Who comes up and they're all dancing uh, to Camp Town Races, is, and he's like, "You're dancing like a bunch movie. of Kansas City." Blanks yeah. begins with an F. <laughs> I don't know what Kansas City had to do with it, but you know, I laughed either way. Um, so it is, Camille. Yeah. So what did you think? Um, I mean, the movie itself is wonderful. Yeah. Um, it's very, very funny. Um, also, those those homophobic moments they they made me sad, and I am opposed to those things. And I wish they had I, included I, that I in that three minute but... thing in the front. There's some anti-Irish um, no, stuff in there too. Um, yeah. <laughs> Cleavon Little, by the way, who died uh, far too young. Um, I think he was like in his forties or something when he died. Uh, a fantastic actor and so good in that movie 
when Charisma he out the eyeballs. Man. Oh my god! When when he does, he consistently does the like racist caricature when he's making fun of them. Uh-huh. You know, of like yeah, the like forties yeah, yeah. kind of like scared black characters in American movies, and that's the, the kind of spoof on on uh racism in movies too and he's so good at it and so funny and as i pointed out to camille people say oh this racist movie and blah blah and but but hbo helpfully explains to you that it's mocking racism that that one of the writers was richard Pryor on the movie so Mm. to be pointed out um he must have written where all the white women at (laughs) yeah (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) that was so good that was so good (laughs) where the white women at (laughs) oh my god I do. Uh, I did. I couldn't help but wonder what it would have been like if Richard Pryor had played that role, though. And I think that would have been pretty good. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it just would yeah. be different. Like Cleavon Little was like uh, he was the leading man. Richard Pryor's yeah. weird. He's, he's weird. weird. He's His face is weird. He's twitchy and nervous. He's all coked up. Yeah. Yeah. He's super coked up. Uh, uh, Madeline Kahn, who is amazing in that movie as the uh, oh, German. God. Uh, which this, uh, Alex it's Harris cool. is in it too. Sure, yeah. Uh, football player, uh, former uh, father of uh, Emmanuel Lewis and Webster. He plays Mongo. That is actually Alex Harris. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Look closely. He, it's a young always, Alex Harris. Alex Harris, who was like a brutal football player. He's like a, yeah. he's like a oh linebacker. Yeah. He played an absolute pussycat in every single thing that he was in. Was, well, you know, football players that become actors um, sometimes become friends of Camille's. Just saying. True. Yeah. Just saying. I, I'm just going to leave that out there. Right. No, it's sometimes true. it is true. They become friends of Camille. And that is man this, is O.J. Simpson. <laughs> is this one of your doghouse friends? Terry, Terry Crews. This is my homeboy. Yeah. This is my homeboy. I'm going to ask Terry if he wants to come do the podcast. We could, we could have some fun. We'll That'd be great. Thanks. Yeah. And by the way, Terry Crews is also fucking hilarious because idiocracy oh, oh he my God. is so funny as it's remarkable uh, as like like what was the president president, president Camacho. hector camacho <laughs> oh my god mike judge's uh masterwork brought to you you by doritos uh well but which is why they wouldn't release the movie they 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 didn't they didn't screen it for critics and they only Uh ran it in a few theaters because they were afraid of um of uh you know it attacks all these brands in it um which is which is actually kind of funny because like there's that big black lives matter mural that is wrapped around that brooklet that building um it, what when you come down not atlantic but vanderbilt mm-hmm. like right down by barclays center there's a massive building that is wrapped in like black lives matter murals and it has the doritos logo not massive but it's just right there. Wait, it's, it's a Doritos right Black Lives Matter. It's a Doritos inspired Black Lives Matter. In fact, there's a bunch of those corporate Black Lives Matter like murals, like just Frito dotted Lay? all over. Yeah, yeah, dot, dotted all over Brooklyn. And and that's the thing about all of these these corporate statements of concern that, that are just not distinguishable from one another because they're all using the coded language of the movement. Do the work. Black Lives Matter. Um, the Camille's name caring. The, I mean, yeah. who cares? I don't even I want know, a, an apology from Frito Lay because when I was uh, younger, they brought this back in a in a vintage bag. Uh, they had taco Doritos. Does anyone remember this? And uh, we will get emails about this. There was a taco Dorito, which I 
believe came out again in a special edition a few years ago uh, that had a sombrero on it. And I yeah. think oh. that might be offensive uh, today. I'm not sure, but uh, probably. So I want, a, I want an apology from them. And, uh, you know, they should donate money to my, my foundation that I just started. I've, I've just realized that Mongo um, is probably like short for Mongoloid. Which I mean, it's yes, another, it absolutely this, is. This, that is yes. a disgusting, despicable yes. joke. Yes, There's, unbelievable. Um, when we're talking about corporations, I want to. I have a request uh, for our listeners, and um, mm-hmm. this is building on something you guys have already done. A lot of you are Patreon listeners who have um, done this without us asking. Friend of mine has an idea, and we're going to try to do it together, and maybe we'll release it as a fifth column thing. I haven't told these guys about it. We talked about it probably about an hour before we started recording, who's a brilliant, brilliant, funny guy, wants to do a podcast about these new corporate training programs that are going on uh, now across America, whether it's you're reading White Fragility or you're reading Ibram X. Kendi's book, we have had a number of people from major corporations, mm-hmm. from branches of the military, from banks, from all over the place who have written in and told us the bizarro things, um, the struggle sessions that they have had to submit to in the quest for, for uh, greater uh, equity, uh, diversity, representation, etc. And some of them are really, really strange. And a lot of people are making an ass load of money off of this. Um, you know, you can go out and look and find how much, uh, Robin D'Angelo makes per speech. It's appalling. <laughs> I hope she's giving it away, uh, as reparations. Uh, but if you have stories about this and keep in mind that if you don't want your company's name, you, you, totally fine. We're, we're good with all of that stuff. Yeah, but keep, write keep us. Sending it. Write us at the, you can write us at the email address if you're on a Patreon. You can send us messages on Patreon. It's contact at wethefifth.com. Send us uh, your stories and uh, you can tell us where you work and and where you are and the rest of it and we won't reveal that information. But uh, a friend of mine has a a project and would love to hear uh, your stories. And uh, it's a fine, guy, uh, Camille actually knows him. He's one of the funnier guys that I know Um, and an interesting, brilliant guy. And a, a journalist and um, is interested in uh, in seeing what you got. So send send that stuff along. It'd be great. That'd be great. You won't say the name. That actually has me nervous. I don't know who you're collaborating with now. You know, I. Mm-hmm. So now I'm really uh, nervous. Yeah. So Herman Cain <laughs> had some kids, right? Um, <laughs> big fans oh, of the show. Man. Uh, oh, but by the way, before we get to Blazing Saddles, I was going to say the shitty thing, the shitty title, um, which sounds like a like something on um, A&E, World's Most Wanted on Netflix. Sounds terrible. Mm. World's Most Wanted. Sounds like something like, you know, know, World's Most Wanted is fucking amazing. Two episodes. There's four episodes. I've watched the first two. The first one is about the Sinaloa cartel. And the second one is about a man who supplied... Uh, among other things, owned the radio station that suborned the murder and supplied the machetes for the Rwandan genocide, um, who I was arrested, actually, a few months ago. Um, it's utterly fascinating, brilliant filmmaking, unhosted, no voiceover, beautifully shot. The access 
is shocking and enviable for people who make films like this. And uh, I would recommend you go watch it. I don't know. The second, uh, the third one, which I haven't watched, is uh, uh, that Braithwaite woman, the woman who converted to Islam, the British woman who became an ISIS uh, supporter and has uh, been in Syria. Mm. Uh, the first two, though, are, are, are really terrific. So that's my recommendation. Anybody else got anything that they should? Uh... We get a lot of reaction to the recommendations. So if you got anything good you're reading or watching or whatever. And Matt, no pornography this time, please. Uh, yeah, please, Listen, Matt. I, you, you fulfill every request. Uh, no, uh, <laughs> Easy's marching me through the uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh, Is she? God, God help me. But she like went to the trouble of figuring out TV shows, you know, post credits, uh, little scene, figuring out how they would all uh, work out in chronological order of where the story is at, and we watch we're watching it through the chronological story, right? So like the first one is uh, necessarily like the Captain America because it's from World War Two, and then the next one I think is Captain Marvel because it's in the nineties, I think. So it's like that. But she paid a lot of attention to detail. And it's actually kind of interesting. So Matt to... is recommending the most popular film series of the past decade. Uh, no, I, I'm a, I'm, 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 that's a wind-up to say that I watched Iron Man 3 last night. And Again, very popular. Super popular movie. <laughs> uh, but Ben Kingsley's performance is hilarious. That's it. Oh, man. And Camille is going to give us a recommendation for Harry Potter, who is a mischievous little scamp. No, I'm, I'm still I'm still on like a, a weird abolitionist kick. I'm actually rereading sections of the John Brown uh, biography, which that's that's what I'm reading about that um, and uh, the various adventures of Paul Bogle. So, if you know, who that is good for you. The, 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 a great recommendation, Camille. You're making people do homework to see if they want to actually. I will. I'll, I'll, I will actually answer the question. That's uh, as I've mentioned. I think on the Patreon, probably dropped it a, little, a few times. Um, I've been uh, uh, compiling month by month uh, playlists of uh, of music that was released in 1989. And um, on Twitter, I will solicit people to say, "Hey, you know what? What should I be listening to uh, from that month?" And it's been great. And thank you for those of you who've been doing it and um, I've made a few discoveries along the way that I would not have known otherwise uh, the one that I'm excited about right now which came out in May of 1989 is the band Pop Will Eat Itself oh yeah Pop Will Eat Itself of course yeah. um, which is I believe a uh, a British semi punk related band that got really into sampling and public enemy yes. in particular um, and also uh, German industrial music and kind of like all put it the smash it up together uh the name of their record is this is the day this is the hour this is this which is a mm-hmm. terrible name um and that record is super great it is just weird sounding and it couldn't be done now because of uh, uh sampling laws are completely different uh now they have a song on there i think called uh, uh that's hilarious called um not now james we're busy um, which uh, has about a thousand different samples of James Brown in a way to uh, send up the fact that uh, every uh, rap song in 1989 sampled James Brown. And then it One talks song in particular, Funky Drummer. Uh, yes. And then it talks yeah. about uh, the subject of the song is actually uh, James Brown uh, Brown's arrest. Um, so it's like it's all kinds of weird uh, mind things. But uh, just today on on Twitter, I was uh, tr- really what's the name uh, of the song? Not now, James. We're busy because, it's you pretty- know, I think also in 89 or 90, uh, Big Audio Dynamite, uh, Mick they Jones, sampled the that, band. they sampled that song. Yes. They, 
on their album Megatop Phoenix, they have a song uh, about James Brown's arrest. Yes. Uh, which which also has a very long sample of the Who's Can't Explain in it. So we're getting really deep now. So I think that more people will actually take your advice to watch a Marvel movie than probably <laughs> itself. Uh, I just want to add uh, in a, a measure of satisfaction, um, I put, a, 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 as I do uh, on these things, a, a little uh, poll on Twitter, like, which of these albums do you like better? And I included the uh, Pop Elite itself uh, uh, record and... Uh, it was uh, retweeted by the official uh, account of uh, Pop Elite itself. Who knew they had an official Twitter account? How many followers do they have? I did, did haven't checked, but uh, but uh, yeah, um, probably not a whole lot. But yeah, it's well, I, are you following them now? Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Good. Good. Yeah. Good. Um, all right. Well, okay. there you go. That's it, America. Marvel, mm. check them out. Mm. God, this podcast has got to end. <laughs> <laughs> I just saw I just saw a headline that made me sad. Just oh, no. they were they were raised to be colorblind, but now more that <clears throat> they were raised to be colorblind, but now more white parents are learning to talk about race, which mm-hmm. just uh, that's what you created—a bunch of white people walking around talking about race. I mean, I really did like try to help you people and just point <laughs> out to you that something was wrong. There was something in the water. And they say, Camille, always, always talking about this stuff. We get it. We understand what you think about them. You didn't do anything. And now it's it's not enough to regard people by the content of their character. Now you have to look at them, presume them to be fundamentally disadvantaged. Mm-hmm. And that is how you demonstrate that you're a good person. <laughs> by um, By indulging in actual racism. <laughs> and believing in literal white supremacy because white silence is murder. It's well, the worst if they're saying that to you, Camille, if they're saying that, Ugh. why you're talking about this, we get it, we get it. No, they don't say I, that anymore. I invite them. Nobody says that Ladies anymore. and gentlemen, Americans, Europeans, to walk a mile in Camille's shoes <laughs> as a black man in the neighborhood that he lives in. Don't touch my shoes. And touch they're very expensive shoes. shoes. They're very nice shoes. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so if we have any listeners left after this fucking disaster. No, it's fine. <laughs> All right. Bye. All right, bye. bye. We, we, we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan horse.